We're looking at the book of Galatians, and um, we probably need to start in the book of Acts for a moment and just uh, note a couple of things that will be helpful to us as, by way of background. In Acts uh, 13, we read about uh, Paul and Barnabas being sent out by the church in Antioch. There are several Antiochs in the ancient world and a couple of them in the scriptures. This is Antioch of Syria. And they went to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from first, and then they went up to Perga and arrived in verse 14 at Pisidian Antioch. And that's probably where Paul arrived and started preaching in the Galatian region. There's some debate about that, but I think it's best to see Galatians as written to the South Galatian brethren, uh, which means that it's the people that he preached to in Acts 13 and 14 after he left Cyprus. We have an example of his preaching in Acts 13 in Antioch, and then in chapter 14 and verse 1 he goes to Iconium, and then in 8 to Lystra, and then in 20 to Derby. And so I think these are some of the, the brethren that um, Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. Now in chapter 15 and verse 1 of Acts, some men came down from Judea, this is to Antioch of Syria, but they were teaching unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now evidently these brethren went throughout the Galatian region too. Some brethren who were teaching that you have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. And the Paul and Barnabas ended up going to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the apostles and the elders there, and they wrote a letter, including in verse 24 of chapter 15, since we've heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Here are some that um, were trying to discredit Paul's apostleship and teaching the need to uh, follow the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. And uh, come on in guys. If you can find a place to come in. Well, I think, don't you, does everybody agree we're better off in here, or do you want to be in the auditorium? These two are getting ready to take a nap, so we'll have a little more room. Oh, that's no problem. I mean, what do you think, guys? This is fine. Yeah, I prefer this, but if the majority prefer the auditorium, I don't care. Anybody strongly prefer the auditorium besides Sandra? I like being close, so. And we'll, if it gets too warm in here, we can turn the air down, so. Um, so they're, they're telling Paul, uh, or they're, they're telling the brethren here in Acts 15, that uh, they have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. And, and the brethren in this letter, in verse 24, are saying, we didn't send them out. They're not, uh, they're not going uh, from us, or they haven't come from us. And so this letter that they write in Acts 16 and verse 4, Paul passes through the cities of Galatia, delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. The fact that Paul spread this letter around through the what I believe are the Galatian churches, is an indication to me that those false teachers have probably gone through the Galatian churches uh, teaching the false doctrine. Now, I don't know whether Galatians was written before or after Paul delivered these decrees um, to the churches of Galatia. I think you can make an argument either way on that, and there's some things in the book of Galatians that perhaps uh, have some relevance to that. But basically, this is the setting. 
these false teachers teaching you've got to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to be saved and Paul teaching that that's not the case do you have any comments or questions about this background to Galatians alright look at Galatians 1 let somebody read 1 to 5 Paul the apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of men but through Jesus Christ and God the father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia praise to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, I want to do three things with this introduction. We'll just kind of go through it. Then I want you to notice how this introduction fits with the letter itself, and then we'll notice some practical lessons. Paul begins, as he always does, with his own name. But what does he emphasize about himself? Yeah, man didn't have anything to do with his being an apostle. Why would he emphasize that? Because of the false teachers. Who were implying that Paul's apostleship was illegitimate. Or at least that he was kind of made an apostle by the other apostles, so he was sort of inferior to them. Well, that's not true. He did not receive his apostleship from men. They were not the source of it, and they were not the mediators of it. Now, why would Paul be so concerned to defend his apostleship? So he gave himself credibility? Yes, because if he's not a true apostle, then the gospel that he preaches may not be a true gospel. And so it's important for him to establish his being an apostle to really prove what he teaches. So he does that. Um, And it's through Jesus Christ and through God the Father who raised him from the dead. And that's interesting because the mission of an apostle is to be a witness of the resurrection from the dead. So perhaps that's the reason he mentions that in verse 1. and, and this not only came from Paul, but who else sent this letter? Yeah, there's other brethren with Paul, we don't know who they were, that are sending it with him. Who's he writing it to? Yeah, he just says the Church of Galatia. He didn't say anything about them. He just, these are the groups in, in Galatia. As I suggest, I think Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, that region, the South Galatia theory, if you read some of the uh, work, uh, the commentaries and so forth about that, that I think that's who he's addressing this to. And he wishes for them what? Grace and peace, always in that order, because grace leads to peace. And where does the grace and peace come from? From God and Jesus, not from man's own efforts. And then he extends on Jesus as the one who gave himself for our sins. And by doing that, he engaged in a successful rescue operation. What did he rescue us from? Yeah. 
the, the present evil age, the world that we live in. He's rescued us out of that. And thank, so thank, to, thank God uh, that, that we've been rescued, that we've been forgiven, that we've been redeemed. And uh, that's what he says in verse 5, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. That's the basic idea, just kind of glancing through those first five verses. I'll pause and let you make comments before we go on to these other points. Yeah. Um, in verse 4, is he saying that, uh, like, is he telling them this, um, just as a reminder, like we kind of do with, when we take the Lord's Supper, you know, like we all know that he was crucified, but we still kind of say it. Is he doing it in that manner, or is he doing it in a manner, in a manner to, like, I guess exhort them? Well, I think what he says in this introduction leads him to what he's going to say in the letter. I think he's preparing them for what he's going to say in the letter. So I'll, I'll note in a minute some of the correlations I see between the introduction and the letter itself. I think it's fascinating. Almost all of Paul's letters, when you look at the introduction, it's purposeful. You know, he mentions things that sound like he's just sort of talking. But when you see the content of the letter, you realize that he's got a point behind each thing that he says. Other comments or questions? Okay, look at some of those foreshadowings. For example, in verse 1, the fact that his apostleship is not from men. He strongly asserts that in chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. And maybe to some extent even underscores that in chapter 2. That, but that is the main theme of chapter 1, starting in verse 11, that his apostleship doesn't come from men. So he's already saying that, affirming that, in verse 1. The fact that all the brethren who are with me are sending the letter also. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul made the point that other leading brethren agreed with the teaching uh, that he, he gave. And so this is also emphasizing the fact he's not a lone ranger in this. There are other brethren with him teaching the same thing. When he wishes for them grace and peace. Granted, Paul does that in every letter. But in this letter especially, what they really have problems with is grace and peace. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. And look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. So this is an especially good letter to wish grace and peace to them because they need that. Uh, they're, they're lacking those qualities. And then the fact that he stresses in verse 4 that the salvation comes from Christ Therefore, it doesn't come from ourselves, not from our own works. That's the theme of chapters 3 and 4. That's really the point he's making. Verse 3 and 4 really summarize chapters 3 and 4. As he makes the point that we are not our own saviors. We are saved by faith in Christ. And then, it's also significant, I think, that there are no compliments in this letter. When you look, for example, at verse 2, and he just writes to the churches of Galatia, what kind of compliments would Paul often give in that section? When he describes who he's writing to, he would sometimes write what? Writing to faithful brethren, or... 
saints sanctified or just the fact that they're brethren or holy sometimes called the church the church in the introductions or the church of God in Corinth or something like that almost all the letters that he writes to churches he writes something that shows their faithfulness or their sanctification or their brotherhood or their connection with God or something this one he just says the churches of Galatia now you might think, well that doesn't really matter. But I suspect, looking at what the content of the letter is, he didn't have anything complimentary to say about them. And what does he usually do in the very next section after the salutation? What will he usually say? I thank God for you, dot, dot, dot. He doesn't have that here. Look at verse 6, that's the next verse. That's not a thanks. <laughs> There is only really one other letter, more or less, that Paul wrote in which there's not really some sort of a thanks section or something close to it. Uh, usually fairly quickly after he writes the salutation. What's the one other letter that Paul writes that really does not have a thanks section? Yeah, I don't count Paul as the author. Everybody know? Be a good Bible trivia question. Titus. And if you read Titus, you see why. You know, he's fine with Titus, but Titus is in Crete. The brethren are all what? Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and whatever else uh, that poet said. And they need to be rebuked sharply. And, you know, things are not good in Crete. Things are not good in Galatia. So how is he going to thank God for them? You know? So I think you see, even in this introduction, a hint that this is not going to be a very pleasant letter. You know, he's not very thankful for these brethren. They're not doing well. He doesn't have much positive to say about them. All right, I'll pause there. Do you have comments or questions about that? I look at some other points that I think are practical in this introduction. If you look at verse 1, um, what would verse 1 tell you about the nature of Jesus? Jesus is not what? Separate from God? Uh, he's not separate from God. But what is Jesus not? Paul didn't consider Jesus appointing him as something from men. Yes! Do you notice that contrast? Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Not through man, through Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is not man the way Paul is looking at him. He is, in fact, with God the Father, the joint source of Paul's apostleship, just as in verse 3, he's the joint source with the Father of grace and peace. And you can see different times where grace, say 1.6, is from Christ, and 2.21, where it comes from God. God and Christ are both the source of grace. Now, so what do we say about Jesus? 
Was he man? Sort of. Yeah, one time. So you might not think of him as a man now, although I must say, what about 1 Timothy 2.5? That calls him man now, doesn't it? (laughs) The thing about Jesus is, he breaks the categories. He's not a man in the sense of a mere man appointing Paul as an apostle. He goes way beyond mere manhood. But but he was a man in some senses. And he is a man in some kind of sense, at least that Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. I think we just look at, 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 at Jesus and we say he is beyond being able to put him in any one category. He is his own category. You know, you can look at so much about Jesus, even on the earth. On the earth. Was Jesus a man? Yes. Can man forgive sins? Jesus forgave sins. Therefore. <laughs> yeah. Now, you can't do that with Jesus. He was a man, but he wasn't a an ordinary man. He wasn't there's some parts of him that don't fit in humanity. So was Jesus God on the earth? Yes. Was he tempted? Yes. Can God be tempted? <laughs> so he wasn't God. If you do either one of those things, you can multiply that with all kinds of things. You can prove either that he wasn't man or he wasn't God. Well, he wasn't exactly man or exactly God. He was the God man. He, he doesn't fit in any categories. And anybody who tries to play with this thing can come up with all sorts of heresies about Jesus, just you know, doing little mental uh, things like that, which isn't responsible. When you're dealing with Jesus, we just don't have a category for him. He was man and he was God. And he has some characteristics that are human, some that are divine, even when he's on the earth. And I think we have to, you know, we have to recognize that. In this case, he's certainly not just a man. And therefore, if Jesus, or if Paul receives his apostleship from Jesus, that's not like receiving it from an, an ordinary man. He certainly was not that. Comments and thoughts about this? So he was like a hybrid. He was like a hybrid, yeah. Don't know that I've ever used that word for him, but uh, yeah. One way to look at it. Okay. Um, it, uh, do you think there's some uh, I also was thinking of Acts 17 when he's talking to the Athenians he calls Jesus a man there he'll judge uh, he is fixed today which he does the world righteous by a man whom he's appointed um, does, does, it help, does Paul use that to help people understand certain points I think so I mean I think we do the same thing Sometimes we look at Jesus' humanity, sometimes we look at his deity, and we're emphasizing different things when we do that. So I think, yeah, you know, sometimes you look at Jesus and you think of him as a man, sometimes you think of him as God, but you should not think of him as merely a man, or as merely God, because when he was incarnated, he combined both. It kind of blows your mind, and it makes you realize... We don't understand that. I mean, that, that goes beyond anything we can, you know, really relate to. 
Which is why, you know, in the history of the church, there have been all these Christological controversies, controversy about the nature of Jesus. And a lot of them are just because people are unwilling to just believe what the Bible says. They want to analyze it and organize it and synthesize it and whatever else they want to do to it that you can't do. You know, you've got to just accept what God's word says even though it doesn't exactly fit something that fits a logical model that we have. Other thoughts about that? Alright, look at another practical thing out of this passage. In verse 4, when he talks about rescuing us from this present evil age. Now what does he mean by this present evil age? Would that mean that since we are, there's three places that you can go universally, hell, world, or heaven, and this is considered still an evil age because you get hell and heaven. Yeah, that's the idea. Who is the prince of this world? Satan. Satan. This world, this age, is still ultimately an evil age. But have we been rescued out of this world? Where do we think we are? This is another case where we don't have categories. We're in Galatians 1.4 at the moment. Um, because are we are we in this age or are we in the age to come? We're in both. We're in the overlapping of the two ages. We share some things with this present age. What are some things that we have in common with this present age? Yeah. Exactly. We live, we die. Death is a part of this present age. It's not a part of the age to come. There's no death in heaven. But we're a part of the age to come in our fellowship with God and our spiritual life and so forth. So in one sense we've been rescued out of the world. In another sense we still live in the world even though we don't belong to it. You know, we're kind of from another planet. We're sort of extraterrestrials. Uh, we don't really fit in here because we've been rescued out of this age and we really have our sense of belonging to the age to come even though we're still living here. So we're in the overlap of the two ages. Thoughts or comments about that? Here's another practical thing I think from this and really important for the, the uh, uh, book as a whole. And that is the blessings we have come from Christ. Verse 3, what blessings come from Christ or from God? Peace and grace. Peace and grace. What blessing comes from Christ in verse 4? Yeah. Our forgiveness, our rescue, everything that we have really that matters comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from ourselves. One of the things Paul is doing so much in the book of Galatians is to attack self-righteousness. The basis of our salvation and our relationship with God is Jesus. Um, and he sacrificed himself to redeem us out of this age. Jesus' Jesus' death was not primarily just some demonstration of how much God loves us. It did that. But it actually rescues us. It redeems us. And and so everything we have uh, comes from, from Christ. And therefore, we ought to praise him. We ought to we ought to be able to say and we ought to often say to, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. God deserves the praise and we ought to be giving it. 
All right, that's everything I want to say on the first five verses. Do you have things you want to say about those? All right, somebody want to read six to ten? I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him to pardon by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to disturb, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And as, as we have said before, so I say again, now if any man is preaching to you a gospel, Contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Or am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ Jesus uh, of Christ. Okay. Now I want you to think about, uh, kind of think through this passage, and then again we'll try to draw some practical lessons from it. Um, when you look at verse six, how does it strike you? already slamming them. <laughs> wow! You know, especially when you remember that usually this is like a blessing section, a thanks section. And very abruptly and strongly we come to, you can squeeze through there I think. Alright. Usually, it's a blessing section, and now he's cursing them. <laughs> you know, this is, this is such a strong statement. It's very abrupt. But there's no reason to pretend things are better than what they are. He's just frank with them. And he says, I'm amazed. Now, when he uses the word amazed, what do you see in that? Yes. What do you say, Matt? Disappointment. Disappointment. Yeah. Because, you know, they had the gospel. What a disappointment. It's kind of rebuke underneath the surprise. This is not a good amazement. This is a bad amazement. You just can't believe this. That they are so quickly deserting him. Maybe so quickly after he had taught the gospel to them. They were so ready to abandon it. Maybe so quickly after the false teachers arrived, you know, they just get a whiff of the false doctrine and they're already falling for it. They had little resistance to the virus of false teaching that was spreading through that region. It's just like, man, you just succumb just like that. And uh, he says, I'm, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him. Now, he uses... The, the present tense, you are deserting. The deserting isn't completed yet. They're in the process. That's why he could still write to them with some hope, I think. But they, they are, they're in the process of going AWOL from the army of Christ. Uh, and they're in the process of deserting not something. What are they in pro the process of deserting? Him who called you of all things to desert to receive what? Some perverted gospel. Why would you abandon Jesus and, and only get this in return? That stinks. You know, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense 
to lose so much in order to gain so little so quickly. So he says, you're, de- you're deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, how did God call them? Was it by law? Was it by works? No, he called them by grace. Well, he's going to get that point in a bunch of times early. You know, we've already seen the grace emphasized in verses 3 and 4. He called you by the grace of Christ. Um, and, and for a, you're deserting for a different gospel. But he says, really, not another. Now, the point he's making is, he actually uses two different words there, different and another. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a different gospel. It's not another gospel. Another might give you the idea, well, it's just a, you know, it's an alternate good news. Well, it's really not good news at all. It's a whole other system that's inferior. There's no adequate substitute for the gospel. Uh, he says, you know, it's not, a, it's not another. Here's what's happening. There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, who are the some? What were their names? Okay, well, that's what we call them. We have no idea what their names were. We read about them here in Galatians, we read about them in Acts, and more or less read about them in some other books, but I have no idea what their names were. Why didn't he tell us their names? They don't matter. That's exactly right. It doesn't really matter. If he had told us their names, you remember, you guys are almost too young to remember this, but do any of you ever listen to Paul Harvey? A few of you. Paul Harvey was a news commentator. He was pretty cool. He just died not long ago at the age of 90 or something. But uh, he, would, he would tell some outrageous stunt some idiot did, you know, to try to get attention. And he'd tell about this guy doing it, and then he'd say, he would like for me to tell you his name. Then he'd move on to the next <laughs> news item. He wouldn't give the name. You know, uh, giving the name sort of gives recognition. It sort of gives, it sort of dignifies somebody. It gives him attention. Paul is not going to name these, you know, guys. He, he sort of disdains There's some who do this. Whoever they are, it doesn't really make any difference. They're nobodies. So normally, Paul does not name the false teacher. I don't think it's because he was, you know, afraid of offending somebody or afraid of stepping on somebody's toes or something like that. I think he's just not going to uh, honor them by, by calling them by name. He says what these guys are doing is they're disturbing you. You know, if you pervert the gospel, it's going to disturb the church. It's interesting that that verb disturb is in the original the same one as in Acts 15.24. These guys have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. Which is a, you know, points out that we're talking about the same ones. It wouldn't have to be from that word, but that is a, that, that goes along with that idea. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh, so, He's amazed that they're giving up the gospel for this. Comments and questions on 6 and 7. Kind of one of those deals where every word in those two verses is significant. He picks them carefully. And so he warns them in general in 8 and 9 about what? doesn't matter who's uh, preaching the gospel uh, in, a, in a false way, he's, to be, he's going to be cursed. He's to be cursed. Exactly. 
This is the gospel of Christ. That is greater than who gives the message. If it's even an angel from heaven who preaches a different gospel, what should you do? Yeah, Don't even listen to him. I don't care who he is, he's not greater than the gospel. You know, some people have too great a respect for certain preachers and pastors and things like that. He said, I don't care if this guy that's preaching it is an angel from heaven. If it's different from the true gospel, let him be accursed. And he reinforces that by repetition. He says basically the same thing in verse 9 that he said in verse 8. You know, he's again saying, whoever it is that preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. He shows by repeating it that he's not making some sort of exaggerated statement. He's making a serious, sober, calm affirmation. They've already received the pure gospel from Paul. So any innovation, any alteration is wrong. Comments and questions through not. These verses really bring up the value of the one gospel. Um, absolutely priceless. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but absolutely, that's exactly right. <laughs> There's nothing that can compare with it. I don't care who delivers it. You're exactly right. Where's 10? Does it strike you as that doesn't exactly fit in here? Sort of. Yeah, it doesn't. It's like, huh? Why does he say this? Here is what I think. You see what you think. This may require you to, you know, study the book some too. I think the false teachers have been accusing Paul of adapting his gospel to the Gentiles so that they'll like it better and so they'll like him better. That in order to facilitate their entrance into Christ, he told them they didn't have to be circumcised and they didn't have to keep the laws and that they were saying, Paul, just he just tries to tell people what they want to hear. You know, he's just trying to get them to like him. And after all, circumcision would be a rather painful procedure as an adult. And so Paul's just watering it down so that they'll like him. He kind of ignores the hard demands of the gospel. If he was really preaching the, the, the true tough gospel like we are, he'd demand circumcision. But he just likes to, to please everybody. Well, if that's what they were saying, then look at what Paul's saying in verse 10. Does it sound like I seek the favor of men? You know, what he just wrote about whoever it is, let him be accursed, doesn't exactly sound like what somebody was who would write who's trying to please men. Don't you agree? So I think he's just kind of picking up on this idea and saying... And, and, and are they still accusing me of trying to please men? <laughs> After what I just wrote, you ought to know that's not my motive. You know, can, can't you see how false teachers could have kind of accused Paul of being a wimp? You know, they're saying you got to keep the law, and especially you've got to be circumcised. Yeah, you know, Paul's just not tough enough to go up to those Gentiles and lay it on the line. 
ah, it's painful to be circumcised. We've all been circumcised. And uh, he just tries to water it down. He says, oh, you can get by without that. He won't really preach it like it is. You know, he's just a softy. And he just he just tells those people what they want to hear. Can't you imagine people going up and saying things like that? You know, is it always true that the hardest line is the truest one? Definitely not. I think there are brethren sometimes who think that. Whatever is the most restrictive, it must be the most right. Not necessarily. It depends on whether or not it's in the Bible or not. You know, just because it's more restrictive may be wrong. May not even be true at all. Our goal is not to be either restrictive or non-restrictive. Our goal is to be biblical. Be right with the Lord. And that's where Paul was. He had his purpose in not binding circumcision had nothing to do with not wanting to make the Gentiles unhappy or trying to get more of them to join up or whatever. It was just that that's the truth of the matter, as he will demonstrate abundantly throughout the book. All right, I'm going to make some applications from this passage in a second, but let me pause and let you ask questions and make comments through verse 10. I saw verse 10 as he was an example of the uh, person who wouldn't be teaching from a false angle or a false man. Yes, you're exactly right. And uh, he's a good example in that too. We've got to be people who aren't concerned about pleasing men, but pleasing God. <laughs> That's exactly the right thing. Doesn't make any difference what people think. Preach the truth. Other comments? I think in 511 with that, where um, Paul's saying that that he's being persecuted. Uh, it's, it's that, uh, I'm not sure how that would tie in with, him, kind of, with the rumors and people accusing him not preaching that. What's kind of your take? I think, well, I think 511 is the opposite. Okay. I think 511, they were picking up on things like Timothy and saying, he really, he really believes in circumcision too. He really preaches it too. Okay. I'll, yeah. Sure. So I think they're doing the opposite. Well, I think just, you know, the whole Judaizing concept is to emphasize that, that the only real, true, ultimate relationship with God comes through keeping the law. And that, you know, they're arguing, even back through Acts, they're basically arguing that Paul is short-circuiting the gospel. He's not preaching the whole thing. Because you've got to add these things too to really be a child of God and really please God. So I think, you know, from that context, then what they say, what Paul says in verse 10, that they were accusing him of pleasing men. That, that, that's, you know, I can't prove that, but I think that's a reasonable, otherwise I'm not sure why he says verse 10. I mean, verse 10 almost has to be a reaction to something from my perspective. Huh? If they weren't, if, let's say, if Paul wasn't preaching uh, the right way, then that was holding them back, then... Wouldn't they feel, like, better physically or spiritually? Like, um, they, want, they would, if, they, if it wasn't on the back or something like that, they would go through more spiritual trials. Well, I mean, if he wasn't preaching the truth, then obviously they weren't being saved if they were following what Paul was saying. Uh, but... Of course, Paul was preaching the truth. It's the other guys that aren't. So, 
Think about practical lessons from this. I mean, think about how the gospel is the standard, the touchstone that everything has to be evaluated by. You know, you just compare every teaching with the gospel that Paul and the other apostles preached. And if it doesn't line up with it, it's wrong. I don't care who teaches it. This is not a personality issue. This is a truth issue. Paul did not say, guys, you need to like me. You know, I'm such a nice guy. You follow what I say. He doesn't ask for personal loyalty. He asks for loyalty to the message of Christ. In fact, he says, if we, or an angel of heaven, if even I preach something different than the true gospel I gave you, then don't listen to me either. The point of this is the truth, not the person. And so we need to evaluate everything on the basis of the standard, the pattern of the truth. This would also condemn all latter-day revelations. What about somebody who comes along today and says, well, an angel revealed this or that to me that's not in the Bible? And there's plenty of religions based upon latter-day revelations. You know, the angels that translated the stone tablets that Joseph Smith saw in the book of the Book of Mormon and, you know, various other things. A lot of the sects are based on supposed latter-day revelations. Well, what if an angel did say that? Doesn't make any difference. If he said it, and it's not the same as this, let him be accursed. So, I don't even have to contest whether an angel appeared to Joseph Smith or not. It's still not right if it's not this. Comments or thoughts on that idea? Jody? Um, could be that the Galatians were... Uh... We're trying to please men because of uh, 4.17 where it says that they wish to shut you out that you will seek them. You know, maybe these Judaizing teachers were trying to just say, you know, we got a better thing going here and since you, you don't want to be circumcised, you can't be part of it. And then they would they would say, well, you know, maybe they do and they would, try to, they would get circumcised so they could be part of their group. Yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah, that would make some sense uh, in this context that he's trying to say that against them trying to please men. Uh, so that, that's a possibility. Good point. Yeah. Uh, just on with your last point about Revelation, um, there was a, a waitress at IHOP that I was talking to uh, just a couple months ago, and uh, because of the t-shirt that uh, we were wearing, that she's no word Christians, she came over and told us about her soul-winning efforts, and she gave us her soul-winning script. And I talked to her about, I wonder why um, baptism wasn't mentioned. You're, you're telling them that when they say this, they walk away saved, but it doesn't mention anything about baptism on there. And she said, oh, you don't have to worry about that. My preacher received this directly from the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's you know, inspired with that. And so, I mean, that is... Uh, certainly something that is related to this sort of this is the person you can trust this person as opposed to trusting the message um, and so um, that sort of stuff goes on even today among evangelical type groups it does, absolutely it does and if it's not the same as this message well, let him be accursed I mean, I've often wondered, you know, I remember a number of years ago, you know, 
I've used this illustration, but it's been a long time. I, uh, I had a contact with a guy who lived up around Charlestown, Indiana. I went up and, uh, you know, went to talk to him, tried to set up a study with him. He lived in an underground house without walls. Had walls up so far and then just like spindle, like, you know, railing sort of thing, except for the bathroom. Um, and so as I was talking to him a little bit at the beginning, he said, uh, this is the Lord's house. I said, okay. Well, yeah, it is. He said, he said, you know, we were living, you know, in Jeffersonville, and my wife and I both received a revelation that God wanted us to move to a place on a hill. And, you know, the Lord provided this place, the Lord, and the Lord told him to build the house without walls. You know, and so forth and so on. He went through this whole rather lengthy spiel. And when he got done, I'm like, you know, what does the Lord talking to you sound like? <laughs> you know, what, what, what was that like? Well, he says, it's not really like you and me talking to each other like this. It's sort of like, well, you just get this, you know, well, you get this idea. And, well, it has to be the Lord. What else could it be? <laughs> well, it's like, uh, well, it might be a lot of things, you know. Uh, I mean, how do people know that it was the Lord that said it? You know, do you do you recognize? Did you recognize His voice? You know, I mean, you know, it was the Holy Spirit who who showed me this. Well, how do you know it was the Holy Spirit? There are other spirits around too. You know, I mean, it's just weird how people think. Well, I it he just kind of like well, it just had to be the Lord. Who else could it be? Well. Well, could be an angel from heaven, you know, preaching another gospel. I look about this. Think about this. You know, we are in an era that emphasizes tolerance and pluralism and all that kind of stuff, and we are accustomed to hearing tolerance at any price promoted. It's easy for us to follow the same thing. You know, it's easy for us not to even like things that Paul says here. But Paul is saying that any other faith, any other gospel, any other teaching is not true. You know, if it's not this gospel, it won't get you to heaven. It's not from the Lord. You know, we like to say, well, you know, it may not be what is, you know, helpful to you, but it may give a satisfying spiritual experience to somebody else, so don't down it just because it's not for you. Well, the question is, is it true? And and we have to have enough um, commitment to the Lord and to truth, we're willing to stand for Him, even if, you know, it seems intolerant. I think there's a lot of things that are in the Bible that sound intolerant from today's standards. Jody? I've got a question that's kind of confusing. Um, Dennis and I was talking to this fellow the other day, and, and he was telling us that he was uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he thinks there's only one baptism, and you don't need the water baptism. And then also he uh, he don't go to church. He thinks that they're all her- got heresies in all the groups. He said he's been to all the churches. They're all, no matter what denomination, he even said these study the sec, you know, stuff that we study and whatever. And uh, said that uh, they're all heresies and he stays home and he uh, watches television. He's got that angel network or whatever that is. I don't know that. Satellite <laughs> thing. I don't know what that thing's called. Where you can, they got preaching all day or whatever. So he oh. says he watches that like four hours every day. He watches this one teacher. And 
I showed him a bunch of passages, you know, that uh, that would say that he has to and stuff like that. That he needs to be baptized and cleansed in water, and, and and that you you need to go to church, you know, like in Hebrews and stuff like that, to encourage one another. And and those are the God's commands and all that stuff. But then whenever I read Galatians, sometimes that confuses me because he's just so he's going on the other direction, and he's like, there's no works, it's all grace and stuff like that. So. What would we do? What would I do if I was studying this book with that guy? How would I? I mean, well, stay tuned. <laughs> I mean, I know Galatians three talks about being baptized, right? But I just well, it's hard to hard to put those two together. And you have to understand the meaning and the context of the idea of grace and works. We are saved by grace and not by works. That's very true. We're saved by grace and not by law. That's very true. Now, Titus 3 puts baptism on the side of grace and not works. Baptism is not earning your salvation. Baptism is asking the Lord to save you. Yeah. Right. But we'll talk some more about that as we keep going. Yeah, I agree. It's just, yeah, it's hard to... uh talk to people who are like that. Well, people have kind of been brainwashed and they read some word and they jump to a conclusion about it based upon what they've been taught. And they don't really define it biblically. So sometimes we have to go back through and really look at the passages carefully in their context and say, wait a minute, what you're saying about this passage is not what it's really saying. You don't think the Galatians were, or not the Galatians, but these Judaizing teachers were saying the same thing about uh, circumcision? I think they were saying, here's things you have to add to the gospel to be saved. Okay. And Paul's saying, you don't have to add any, you shouldn't add anything to the gospel. Okay. You know, it's the gospel alone. So they would say the same thing about circumcision as you say about baptism? Well, they might say it, but there's a difference. Circumcision isn't in the gospel, baptism is. That's true. We shouldn't add something that's not in the gospel. If it's in the gospel, then it's then we need to do it. Okay. Yeah, that's the difference. Okay. Good questions. Other comments or questions on that? Um you know, you might look at for just a second the whole idea of verse ten. And I would just make the point that you cannot please men and serve the Lord. You can't do both. You have to make a choice. And, you know, in that light, in verse 10, you cannot try to preach the gospel if your motive is to try to make people like it. The gospel is not a product you can market and discount to to make the sale. You know, it's easy to want to be popular, but we just preach the truth. Um, you know, I, I wrote in my notes, in a market-driven age, we think of the church's niches, visitors as prospective customers, worship designed to satisfy the consumers, and things like that. So Paul looked at this stuff. He is not concerned about what people think or what people like. He's concerned about the truth. We preach the truth. We teach the truth. We don't try to adapt the truth to make it more palatable or popular or whatever.
Okay, I think that's probably enough of all that from my standpoint. Do you have comments or questions through verse 10 then? That, that kind of attitude reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is commanded to preach and as a result of his preaching, not everybody's going to listen. In fact, the majority of people won't listen. That's what we have to have in our aspect, in our mentality of preaching the gospel is that not everybody's going to accept it. And that's not... That's not saying anything about us and our style of preaching. We need to change our style and change our message. But we have to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we, we wouldn't expect everybody to accept it when we look at the Bible. In fact, we wouldn't expect very many people to accept it. Good point. Other thoughts? Question. About, like, back when you were talking about in verse 6 and how he, you know, skips the whole thing section and there's no compliment in this. Would, what's, what's the difference then between, like, 1 Corinthians, where he does have that, but he's talking to, I mean, it's a book that's full of rebuke. Well, I think that's interesting. I really think the difference is he thinks the Galatians are farther gone than the Corinthians. That's what I would say. Yeah, and, and some of the other books, too. Whoa. I mean, Colossians and, uh, you know, maybe maybe more strongly uh, Colossians than any of the others. You know, you don't see things going that well. Even First Timothy. I mean, you know, Paul left Timothy to Ephesus and there were problems there. You know, but I, I just think he sees the Galatians as just wholesale defect. Like just like that. I think this is shocking him more. Maybe he'd also, you know, the Corinthian problems had been building up over time. He'd been writing them and visiting and things like that. Uh, this may be more of an abrupt thing for him. Do you think it has anything to do with it being an earlier letter that, you know, it was one of the first places he was and one of the first things that he wrote? Could be, could be, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not being sure exactly when he wrote it to. Uh, he might not have written this much different than when he wrote First Corinthians, I mean, time-wise, you know. I don't know. I did anything else through verse 10. I did 11 and 12. For now I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which has preached by me is not according to man, for I neither receive it from man nor was taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, now what's his point here? It wasn't a man's teaching that he didn't learn from any institution or school or whatever. Exactly. Now, he really emphasized, for I would have you know, brethren. You know, so he's giving an elaborate introduction to this because this is something very significant. The gospel that he preached didn't come from man. He didn't get it from man. He wasn't taught it from man. It came directly from Jesus. So, neither Paul's mission, verse 1, nor his message, verse 11 and 12, came from man. And again, he contrasts Jesus with man. Jesus is not in the category of a mere man. Now, look at the contrast between verse 12 and verse 9. They received the gospel, verse 9, 
Paul did not receive it, verse 12. Paul got it directly from God. They got it through a man, through Paul. Paul didn't receive it through a man. He, God, God revealed it directly to Paul. So, and I think the point of this is, is this, and we'll see this, and this is really the theme of the, the rest of the chapter. But I think what he's trying to say is, you can't critique Paul by saying, well, he's not being faithful to what the other apostles taught him. <laughs> the other apostles didn't teach him. He didn't get it from anybody. He got it from God himself. He is preaching what God told him to preach. Don't blame him for straying away from his teachers. He didn't have any teachers. It was the Lord. Alright, comments or questions on 11 and 12? It sounds like the exact same thing from my ears, but I'm not fully there mentally. Um, it sounds like the exact same thing that he's telling them not to do. Don't receive it from a man. Well, they received it from Paul. Paul was a man, but Paul was giving them what Christ directly taught them. Yeah, so... So um, they shouldn't receive it from anyone else. See, in verse 9 he says, contrary to what you received, but he's talking about what they received from the true source, which was Paul revealing it from God. Don't receive it from anybody else. Uh, Other comments? 13 and 14. For you have heard in my former manner of life in Judaism how, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. Now what he's going to do here is he goes through kind of a personal history. And he starts all the way back before he became a Christian. Do you suppose he received the gospel during this period in 13 and 14? <laughs> Doesn't look like it, does it? He was trying to do what with the gospel here? Yeah, exactly. This surely was not a time when he was being trained by the apostles to preach the gospel. Um, and I think there's a secondary thing that he's pointing out here. Even before he turned to Christ, Paul clearly saw the gospel is not compatible with Judaism. The false teachers are trying to merge Christ, Christianity, and Judaism. But Paul always knew it's one or the other. He just had which one it was wrong. <laughs> but he always knew you can't have the gospel and Judaism together. Comments and questions on 13 and 14. Fifteen to seventeen. Sent me apart before, set me apart before his Lord, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went, went away to Arabia and returned again to the Okay. 
now you see quite a contrast between 13 and 14, and then starting in 15. And what changed, Paul? God's calling. Absolutely. Could anything else explain the radical change in Paul if it hadn't been God's own intervention? He says, but when God, who'd set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. So God changed him. And uh, what was the purpose of God's calling in Paul's life? That's exactly right. And that's what Paul did. You know, would you think of Paul's salvation, of, say, God appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus, would you think of that as being something primarily for his own benefit? I don't think Paul thinks of it that way. It was primarily so he could be the conduit to reveal the message to the Gentiles. Now, when God did that, remember how that was. Where was he at when the light appeared? Road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus. And where was he at when he was actually baptized and converted to Christ? In Damascus. Well, what's the first thing he doesn't do? He doesn't go to Jerusalem or consult with flesh and blood. In other words, he doesn't go find out from the other people what he's supposed to preach and teach. Who would have been in Jerusalem that would have been interesting for Paul to consult with? Peter and the apostles in general. And the leaders of the early church. You know, if you wanted to kind of go to headquarters, not saying there really was a headquarters, but but it's where the apostles were. So it'd be kind of like, you know, where everything's going out. Well, you'd go there. Paul said, I didn't do that. I didn't immediately consult with flesh, but I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Where did he go? Arabia. He went to Arabia. What did he do in Arabia? What did you say, John? Yeah. Teaching is my guess. Nobody really knows. And that's what his mission was, to preach the gospel. So if anybody wants to suggest something, that's probably the best. But he really doesn't say, and that's really not the point. (laughs) The point of it is not whatever he may have done in Arabia. The point is, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the people who could have trained him in the message that he was supposed to preach. Um, some people think of him going. I, I, when I was a boy, I always heard that he went to Arabia like to, you know, receive the revelation. But I don't think there's anything that suggests that. You know, if he went there for anything, I suppose he went there like he went anywhere else to preach the gospel. But he doesn't really deal with that, and and it's not his point. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He goes to Arabia, then he comes back to Damascus. And so, how could Paul have received his gospel from men? He wasn't around any men who could have given him the gospel. You know, surely he didn't receive it from them before his conversion. And after his conversion, he's off to Arabia, back to Damascus. Comments and questions through verse 17. So, what's his major point here in going into this? That he didn't get the message from the other apostles. Therefore, you can't critique Paul's preaching by saying he didn't really stay faithful to what the apostles taught him. The apostles didn't teach him. 
He got it directly from God. He's faith with what God told him. I think they were criticizing Paul and saying, well, you know, the other apostles have trained him. That's not really what they said. But he kind of modified it. So would they be saying that the other apostles agree with them? I think they think that the other apostles had it right, and Paul had kind of modified it when he went to teach the Gentiles. No, that's not the case either, is it? It's not like the other apostles are Judaizers. That's correct, but I think that's the way these false teachers represent it. Okay. See, they went out to Antioch, and evidently, evidently these other places, and I think people thought of them as being sent out from the Jerusalem church, because that letter says, we didn't tell them to go. They came as if from us, but, but we, we gave them no such commandment. So they're portraying the apostles saying you have to be circumcised. I think so. He's a maverick. He's going to do his own thing. Yes. So Paul's saying, I didn't learn any of this from the apostles anyways. It came from God, uh, from the Lord himself, and not from them. Yes. Yes. I think they're assuming that Paul was trained by them and then didn't stay faithful to his training. That's, that's what I see. He makes a big point of this. I mean, this is 11 to 24. All of this is really the idea. His gospel was independent of the other apostles, other Christians. He gets it directly from God. Therefore, there's no person who can critique it. He didn't get it from any person. He got it from God. Could it be that his agreement with the apostles can only be explained by like we teach the same things and I didn't learn it from them we're, we're, you know, we're all the apostles the, uh, the authorities and so how could you explain that we're teaching the same thing if, if, I, if I didn't get it from them is that a possibility? I don't think that's his point yeah, I mean yeah, I don't know I, I, to me that's not his point I'd have to think through that one a little bit more but, but I think his point is is um, you know, I think, I think if they are trying to say, we're loyal to the true apostles' doctrine, this other guy they appointed and trained hasn't been true to what they said. He keeps saying, it's n- nothing came from men. My apostleship didn't come from men. My message didn't come from men. I think he's really trying to stress that I didn't get it from them. You know, so he's got divine authorization for what he's doing. Taking this in a, in a little bit of a different direction and trying to apply this to our lives. We see here uh, the history of Paul and we see here that they didn't go and have this preacher training course or whatever. He, he is a new convert and he goes immediately and goes preaching and teaching other people. And that can be applicable to new converts that whenever they first become baptized, they don't really have an excuse to not preach and say or and teach others. They, we all have the message of God. We have opportunities to tell others about that. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, good point. Paul 
too, though, whenever he got, he must have got all his knowledge at one point, you know, if he didn't have to be trained, then maybe, you know, as soon as the light hit him, maybe he planted all that knowledge in him or something, you know, I mean, because when I first became a Christian, I mean, it, I tried, but I don't know if I helped as much as I probably hurt because I, I didn't know very much, you know, and there's a lot of people out there yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how this whole process was, but Paul did almost immediately begin to preach effectively, and and you know he's just in a different category than we are. He got it directly from God. We don't. We have to study, and it takes us a while. Yeah, and even I mean, Paul is a smart guy. He was a Pharisee. It wasn't that he didn't know anything to start with. I mean, Paul knew the plan of the Gospels. He just didn't accept it personally. Jesus. Paul knew God's plan and he understood it. He just didn't want to say Jesus in person. So it wasn't that Paul just woke up one morning and saw the light and didn't know anything about God. Paul said to be a Gamaliel and learned God's plan from him. Sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, Paul Paul was uh, educated in Judaism, uh, but he had not seen Jesus as a part of that. Good points. All right, why don't we take a break for a little bit? And we're on the march. All right, uh, would somebody read chapter 1, 18 to 20? Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And when I am writing to you before God, I do not write. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now I am still unknown in person to the churches of Judea and that are in Christ. They, they only were hearing it saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Okay. So, three years later I went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's a number of things that we need to do with this. Uh, but let's just look at it in Galatians first, and then we'll try to correlate this with Acts. Which we're going to have to try to do in some of these uh, points. Why does he tell us these details about going up to Jerusalem three years later? What's his point that he's trying to make? Now teaching for three years without anybody helping me. Exactly. He is still on this idea that he got the gospel directly from the Lord and no man gave it to him. So, the fact that He'd been preaching the gospel for three years before he even went up to the apostles. <laughs> Means he didn't get the gospel from them. And furthermore, what was his purpose in going up there? To become a friend of Cephas. Not to receive instructions from Cephas. Not to be trained by Cephas. By the way, Cephas means who? Oh, Peter. Yeah. Cephas was the Aramaic. Peter was the Greek. Same word. Uh, and, what's more, how long was he there? Three years. In, in Jerusalem. Fifteen uh, days. Fifteen days. You know, that's really not enough time to be trained to preach. You know, you could have a crash course, but fifteen days? You know, you're not going to get 
a message as deep as the gospel in 15 days. I mean, do you know anybody who would try to to teach somebody everything in the Bible in 15 days? That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? You do a 15-day intensive study, now you've got it? I actually read somewhere you can study through the entire Bible by just reading it and not actually studying what they read at an average pace. Take you like three days. Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly right. And to read it, take you about 70 hours is I think what they say is so big three days. So but as far as... Seven hours? Yeah. Oh, um. <laughs> yeah. You might get a little sleepy, you but... I don't want to try that. Yeah. But as far as just training somebody and, and, and teaching them deeply... Well, I mean, 15 days is, you know, more like enough time to get acquainted and not enough time to be trained, which is, of course, the point he's making. And who did he see when he went up there? Yeah, Cephas and James, and that's it. Um, So, he surely did not get his gospel from from men, from from the men that they would have thought he would have got it from, that is, from the apostles in Jerusalem. Now here's a question. From verse 19, was James the Lord's brother an apostle? Was James the Lord's brother an apostle, according to verse 19? Sounds that way. It sounds that way. Was he one of the twelve? Not one of the twelve, but he was. Are there other apostles that weren't of the twelve? Paul. Paul is. Well, Paul. Are there other apostles that weren't one of the twelve plus Paul? Matthew. Matthias. Matthias, okay. I still consider him one of the twelve. Are there other apostles that weren't one of the twelve and weren't Matthias and weren't Paul? Barnabas. Why would you say? Didn't they, like, draw lots with them? Oh, that was Barabbas. Yeah. Or Barsabbas. That's the way it was. Joseph Barsabbas. But he wasn't the one chosen. It was Matthias that was chosen. In Acts 14, 14, it says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes. Good point. That may be what you were thinking about. We got kind of a problem on this, guys. Um... Do we want, you know, the question of who is properly called apostles in the New Testament is a rather difficult question to sort out. And I'm almost starting to change my belief about this. Uh, So I'm kind of in limbo on this, Matt. Well, would it be the twelve would be the apostles of Jesus and the rest would be the apostles of God, including the twelve? I don't think that's the way to go. Now, here's a possible way to go. The question is, you know, the the Gospels particularly do quite a bit with the Twelve. The Twelve. The Twelve. And it was important for them to choose another apostle to make Twelve when they started out the church. But it doesn't seem that they chose a replacement, say, for James, who was killed with the sword. So I think there's a good argument to be made on the one hand that there were 12, plus Paul, who was born out of due season, and so forth. And if you are going to make the case that you should not call anybody except the 12 and Paul apostles of Christ, then you explain away all these other passages. 
maybe you explain Acts 14 just like you do 2 Corinthians 8 where it's translated messengers but it's really apostles and say they were sent out by the church they were apostles of the church the word apostle means to be sent out well there were other apostles just like you know there were other churches in the Bible there was that riotous mob in Ephesus in Acts 19 it's called an ecclesia it's called the church Church of Christ. It was a it was a gathering for other purposes. Um, so so the word apostle itself could be used for people who were just sent out for whatever. If I send you to the store to get me something, you're my apostle, but not in the sense of the apostle of Christ. So maybe Barnabas and Paul should be seen as apostles of the church at Antioch that sent them out, and we're still not looking at them as being apostles of Christ. Maybe here we ought to see. James, the Lord's brother, as kind of not really, well, let me let me see if I can say it this way. Here, here's a possible view. In verse 19, he said, but I did not see any of the, uh, any other of the apostles. But then he remembers he didn't see James. Except James, the Lord's brother. Not that he was an apostle, but he was an important figure in the Jerusalem church, and he wants to have full disclosure here. So that he's not really calling James an apostle. He's just saying, oh, and by the way, I didn't see James. That's a possible way to explain that. However, maybe we shouldn't be explaining it that way. Maybe we ought to be thinking that there are apostles of Christ in another sense besides the twelve, like Barnabas and like James the Lord's brother. And if we allowed that, that simplifies a few other texts, like Romans 16.7 talks about Andronicus and Junius, who are apostles, who are her, who are, how does it say that? The moment. Romans 16.7. Green Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now, again, you might explain that as well. That means the apostles thought they were outstanding. But it kind of reads like maybe they were outstanding apostles. I don't know what to do with all that. I have pretty much insisted up to this point that there were just the twelve and to explain away the other passages. But, ah, this is tough. And this one's particularly tough. So I don't know. Uh, in the concordance, apostle means sent with authority. And it goes on saying, twelve apostles named as an apostles called as an apostle, an apostle of the Gentiles, not fit to be called an apostles, and a false apostles, he gave some as apostles, Jesus the apostle, and apostles of the Lamb. Okay. Is it not to like the spirit of what you're saying, but does it really make that much of a difference? I mean, like you said before, with verse 18, he was only there 15 days, so whether or not James was an apostle, that apostle, <laughs> whether or not James was an apostle would make a difference because he was only there 15 days. Yeah, he was there with two people, and I guess if James was an apostle, maybe. Yeah, you got you got to get that Spanish out of there. Possible that he could have been inspired and helped him and help Paul out too, but. Would it really make that much of a difference to state whether James... Well, it doesn't. However, maybe there are some semi-practical issues that rest on the idea of whether or not we can limit the apostles to the twelve and Paul. You know, but in this particular context, no. 
points the same either way, whether he's calling James an apostle or not. He didn't see many of the leaders. So, not many people to have trained him. J.D.? Well, before I make my comment, what would be the semi-practical implications if there are kind of other apostles in addition to 12 apostles? Well, the semi-practical application that I see is, okay, can there be semi-other apostles today? I mean, what do we, you know, how do we view the apostolic category? An apostle had to see Jesus. So, well, the 12, that's what you're saying, it's like one of the 12 yeah, but did the other apostles? And I don't know. We when we start broadening that, then what are the rules for other apostles, and you know, so forth and so on. It, got, it gets a little messy, it seems to me. But anyhow, make your comment. Well, I just wonder if there's some flexibility with the term there. Like you mentioned, you see that with church, an assembly there. Well, like with deacon, we clearly see deacon management are men, and there's the deaconess reference. So, you know, you, you're a servant with almost, I don't know, capital S, when you have to meet these qualifications in Timothy, but then you're a servant, lowercase s, man or woman, and you're, you know, that sort of thing. Um, maybe something with church, maybe something with apostles. So you have your apostles, uppercase A, the 12, that's Paul, but then you have some authoritative figures who are also sent. Uh, I don't know if that's... Is that what you're getting at, kind of? Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the question about these. I'm just kind of throwing that out. I don't have a definitive response, but I think it's worth considering both ways. That he may be calling James an apostle, he may not be, and that really kind of is, you know, relevant to the question of, are there other categories of apostles? There are other kinds of apostles? Or whatever. John? Well, one thing is if James was an apostle, let's say, it does but it lends to James, the book in that there's some questions about why James is allowed to at least in my mind, I would like to write a book. <laughs> I mean, what makes him any better than anybody else? And so if this, if this speaks to him being somewhat different, that gives credibility, but then you have to, you have to do something. And Luke and Mark. Yeah. Um, but just, if we did say there are other apostles, I mean, what, like you said, what inhibits them being today? And if, I mean, you'd almost have to say that if there could be other apostles then, there could be other apostles today. Well, you wouldn't have to say that. Why wouldn't you have to say that? Well, because there could have been apostles just for then. I mean, what might? (laughs) They had to see Jesus. Not so far. And James saw Jesus. James is his brother. Yeah, so that might be an issue. As you can see, there's a lot of things to think about. What is your typical answer about the authoritativeness of James to Martin Luke? My answer would be they were prophets. And the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, I don't have a problem with that. Look at 
the correlation between Galatians and Acts. This actually adds to our dilemma here, or may solve it. I don't know. Uh, there's just some things that are kind of, hmm, make you scratch your head in some of this. I don't know all the answers. But, but I want you to notice how this kind of falls. In Acts 9, 19. Paul was in Damascus. Now I assume during part of this Damascus time he goes to Arabia. It just doesn't bother to tell us, but that's not a big deal. And then they he gets out of Damascus in 23 to 25 because of the plot of the Jews. He's let down in the large basket over the wall. And he comes to Jerusalem. That's verse 26. And so I'm correlating verse 26 with Galatians 1.18. Three years later he went over to Jerusalem. Okay. He was trying to associate with the disciples in verse 26, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and so forth. Now that's interesting. Brought him to the apostles and he only saw Cephas and James. Now maybe bring him to the apostles. Peter is sort of, you know, he's an apostle. Doesn't necessarily mean, he probably wouldn't say I brought him to the apostle. Uh, so he brought him to the category of people called apostles it still might be a little easier if he's thinking of James as being an apostle also so he brought him to the apostles Peter and James I don't know, I'm not sure what to do with that you can think about that that's in Acts 9.27 now they tried to kill him, the Jerusalem Jews in verse 29, and so when the brethren learned of it in verse 30, look at where they sent him. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Now, from verse 30, the next thing you learn about Paul is way on over in chapter 11, verse 25, where Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul and brought him to Antioch. So, as far as Saul's career, it goes from Acts 9.30 and jumps over to Acts 11.25. Now, the thing that I want you to notice is, in verse 21 of Galatians 1, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Syria would be Antioch, where he went in 11.25. Cilicia is Tarsus, where he went in Acts 9. So this is probably correlating step by step, except he transposes the two, you know. But he first went to Cilicia and then to Syria. Uh, but but this is probably we're probably going kind of step by step through uh, where Paul has been. In all of that, though, when he's in Cilicia, when he's in Syria, he wouldn't have had opportunities to have contact with the other apostles. He's not where they are. He's not in Jerusalem. And furthermore, the church of Judea didn't even know what he looked like. They'd never even seen him. So they didn't give him the gospel. You know, they just kept hearing what about him? Now think about that. If he's preaching the same faith he once tried to destroy, he hadn't changed the faith. He's preaching the same message that the twelve had preached and that he had been trying to destroy and they were glorifying God because of me in contrast with these false teachers who were trying to discredit me. Comments and questions? I see him in 11 and 24 really nailing down the fact he didn't get his message from any man. 
He got it directly from God. And he proves that in part by just going through his history and saying, when would I have gotten it from them anyhow? I was never around them long enough to get it from them. So that's all I'm going to say about chapter 1. Is there anything else you're going to say about chapter 1? I was interested in Paul, I think that's ever been to emphasize something, you know, when he'll say like, this is a trustworthy statement, or don't don't be deceived. And, you know, verse 20 he says, but I'm writing to you before God is not alive. Um, I mean, he's really wanting to emphasize that, and, and kind of, he doesn't, doesn't think it's just sufficient to say it. He also then says, and I'm not lying about this either. What does that tell you? He, he really wants that point to get across. Why? And I say that point has been made by the false teachers that he did. I mean, I think you say that because he is in dead earnest convincing them, I never even was there where I could have been trained by him. I am telling you the honest truth. God's my witness. You know, he wouldn't say that if this wasn't a contested point, if this wasn't something that, that he thought was really important that they believe. He's trying to convince them he's not lying about this one. And, and you know, what, why, you know, I mean, why is it that you would give more credibility to, to a statement when he says, you know, I assure you before God that I'm not lying? What was the question? Why does that give his statement more credibility to say, I assure you before God that I'm not writing? Usually if somebody would say something like that, it's kind of, they want you to understand that this is serious and this is something that really means. Yeah, you wouldn't say it, you know, like I swear to God, if you have any respect for God at all, if you were lying about it. You know, and that just makes it more solemn, more serious, and makes it something where, I mean, he's, wow. I mean, surely, surely, he's not assuring them before God and calling God as his witness to a lie. If so, he is really perverted. Comments and questions? Would he still have to say that statement, though, if Jesus taught that your yes be yes and your no be no? Yes. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't necessarily fall um, along the same lines as uh, when God himself is saying that, you know, by uh, I'm making this covenant, I'm saying this by in the name of the Holy Spirit. Like, it's just that idea of, um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but that you're kind of swearing, you're using... Or you're making a promise by the highest degree that you can to prove that it's correct. Um, just to kind of, as you said, relieve people of uh, questioning in any way. Okay. I think the key for me is understanding let your yes be yes, your no be no. That means always tell the truth. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to take a solemn oath in the name of God. We know that for three reasons. God swore, 
by himself. Only thing he could swear by, there's nothing greater. Jesus testified under oath at his trial. And Paul frequently calls God as a witness. Paul, Paul is essentially swearing to God. So I don't think it's wrong to take a solemn oath. It is wrong to lie if you're not under oath. It's wrong to lie if you are under oath, but it's even wrong to lie if you're not under oath. <laughs> but even, I mean, for Paul, it didn't make any difference whether he swore or not. It, I mean, right. he, was, he was telling the truth, but he's making a point. There's going to be a lot of things in life that we have to do that for our own self isn't going to make any difference to us. Uh, kind of like what Paul was saying in Corinthians, you know, if it's, you may have a fine eating meat, but you may not do it for this guy. And it's the same here, that Paul knows he's telling the truth. It's not anything that he's doubting. It's that he is saying, I swear by God, trying to make the point stronger, that uh, he really is telling the truth. Exactly. Yeah, good point. That's exactly right. That's for their benefit. He's going to tell the truth both ways. Other thoughts? I got a question about that Acts passage you just mentioned. Uh, I, I didn't see where Barnabas took him, took Paul by the hand, or and took him up to the apostles, where it said it was only James and uh, and or where it was uh, uh, Peter and James. It doesn't say who it was. I'm going back to Galatians 1, 18 and nineteen for that. Oh, okay. okay. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Other questions or comments? Usually when you have... When he said uh, he's owed, giving an oath of God that he has God on his side, of, which is the best side to be on, right or wrong, and that he has so much faith in the Lord and what he's teaching to them, that he's saying everything. Mm-hmm. He's trying to convince them that he's not lying. Alright, chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Um, Paul in chapter 1 had said he couldn't have possibly received his message from the apostles. In chapter 2, I think Paul's moved on from that point. That's been proven. I don't think we need to say anything more about that. Now he's showing the relationship that he had and has to the apostles. And so really he's making a different point now in chapter 2. So would somebody read verses 1 to 10? Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private, so that those who, who were of reputation for fear that I might be running, or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. 
But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he was effectually worked. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to be circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John were deputed to record, gave to me, and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, so we might go to the Gentiles and lead to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also would be with you. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just say this up front. We have a question about how to correlate this with Paul's visits to Jerusalem and Acts. And to some extent, what I'm going to say and my understanding of this passage depends upon which visit I see this as being. There are two options. There are more than that, but there are two main options. Paul went up to Jerusalem in Acts, the end of Acts 11, with money from the brethren at Antioch for famine relief for the Christians in Jerusalem. He went up in Acts 15, like we looked about at the beginning of the study, because of the false brethren who'd come to Antioch to talk about the circumcision question with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. These are the two main visits that people think could have been correlated with this one in Galatians 2. And which one you see it being kind of changes your view a little bit of Galatians 2. And I feel quite confident, even though there are plenty of people who feel quite confident in the opposite direction, that this is the Acts 15 visit. Uh, it's the same thing. You know, it's going out to talk about circumcision with the brethren. That means he skips a visit here. He's not, we're done with the travel log. Now we're talking about some other encounters with the apostles. So he doesn't mention Acts 11. He doesn't need to mention Acts 11. He already dealt at considerable length with the fact he didn't get his gospel from the brethren. I mean, if he'd been preaching as long as the end of Acts 11 and he went up there, who cares? You know, he'd certainly you know, preached the gospel plenty long enough by then that his contact with the apostles weren't going to give him the message he'd been preaching for years. Uh, but, but that's not the point now. The point now is other contacts that he had with the apostles and, and the relationship that he had with them. So I'm going to uh, insist uh, that this is Acts 15. But if somebody cares about that question and has studied it and wants to defend the visit in Acts 11, I'll certainly listen. What are the major arguments they make? I am terrible at making other people's arguments. I only make my own. Because I don't see other people's arguments. So I make them really badly. <laughs> I think the biggest argument is probably that, well, it's the next time to Jerusalem. And so if he didn't mention that, then he's not really being honest. And the second biggest argument is just trying to show differences between the, the Acts 15 visit and things he says here in Galatians 2. Of course, the differences between the Acts 11 visit and the things he says here in Galatians 2 are much more major than the differences between Acts 15 and Galatians 2. Well, like I say, it's always difficult to make somebody else's arguments because you don't believe them, and so you don't really uh, you know, give them much credit. That's a really strongly debated issue among the commentators, and several modern commentators are switching over the view that it's Acts 11. Not that that's only modern. There's older ones that did too. But that seems to be kind of a wave at the moment. 
size thing. I just don't see it. Anybody that want to defend it? I'm not trying to put it down to the point you won't say something if you want to defend it. All right. So we're going to take it as Acts 15. And so he says, after 14 years. Now there's a debate about that. 14 years after what? And was that 14 years after verse 18? After the three years that he went up to Jerusalem? Or is he going all the way back to his conversion? 14, you know, three years after his conversion he went to Jerusalem. 14 years after his conversion he went to Jerusalem. I don't know. Uh, you can think about that and do what you want to with that. But he goes up there with Barnabas and he's got Titus along with him. And he went up because of Revelation. Now, I don't think that contradicts Acts 15. That'd be one of the points they'd make. Well, in Acts 15 he goes up because the church wanted him to go up there. Here it says he went up by way of a revelation. Well, why did Peter go to Cornelius' house? Well, the men sent for him. Well, the Spirit told him to go. It's both. So I think, apparently, God had told him to go there, and the brethren told him to go there, both. I think the point he's making, though, is, it wasn't that the apostles in Jerusalem called him there, like as if they were summoning him, like they had authority over him. He didn't go up because they told him to. He went up by revelation. So his point is, they don't have authority over him. I think that's really why he mentions it's by revelation. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Now he doesn't submit to him the results, he submits to him the message. Here's the message I preach. But I did so in private to those who are of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, later in Acts 15, you see the public meeting. But first, Paul had talked to them privately and, and, and showed them and told them what he was preaching. Now, I think that was a great idea. What's going to happen if the apostles and elders in Jerusalem don't go along with the preaching that Paul is making among the Gentiles? What would have happened? Somebody's wrong. What would have happened to the church? Probably split into two groups. I mean, this would have been disastrous to the work of the gospel if the apostles and elders in Jerusalem had, like, opposed Paul's preaching. They don't do that, thank God. But Paul feels like it's better to have a private meeting first and discuss with this with them in private when other people who have strong Judaizing tendencies aren't there to try to influence the meeting or whatever. Really, I think that might even be a good lesson for us. I mean, I'll give you an illustration that I think was, is, a, is a reasonable illustration. When I moved to Alabama in 91, the church that I went to had essentially just split and about 100 people had left. And the elders, two of them had left, the other four resigned over a period of time. So there were no elders in the church, which is the first time they hadn't, been, hadn't had elders in like 27 years. And so one of the things, within a few months after I got there, all I think everyone agreed that, that they needed to you know, consider the possibility of appointing elders. 
But there were still some strong feelings on both sides of several things in the group. Even the group that stayed did not have the same opinion about some things. And so there were some tensions. And the question was, what procedure are we going to use to, uh, to even go through the elder appointment process? How are we going to select the men? Who's going to be chosen? Etc. There's no Bible formula for exactly how that's to be done. Well, I was an outsider. And everybody saw me as being neutral. I, I, I believe they did. I don't think anybody thought I, I was, you know, on anybody's side. You know, I just got there fairly recently. I didn't have time to be on somebody's side. And, and thank God, I think everybody accepted me that way. So one of the things that I did was I did a lot of talking with influential individuals. You know, over a period of probably three or four months that we ironed out the procedure in business meetings. Trying to keep get everybody on the same page. Trying to listen and, and trying to kind of build a consensus individually because it's hard to build a consensus in a meeting when people are sticking their neck out and saying extreme things or whatever. You can have a consensus ahead of time by really talking to people and working with them, and it worked. You know, thank God. Uh, there were, we developed a consensus fairly easily, fairly easily, as to the procedure to be followed. We had to iron out a few small points, but it worked really well. And uh, elders were appointed, and, and all three of those, I believe, are still elders in, elders in the group, and some more are now. But uh, that worked, worked well. But there are times when it may make sense to talk to somebody individually and work things out with them before you talk to them in public. You talk to somebody in public, they're kind of under pressure. And if they take a position, they're going to have a hard time retreating from it. If you talk to them individually, you can work up on it. You can kind of influence things or whatever. That's what I see him doing here. Do you have a question or comment on one and two?